Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. Lord, just like the New Testament says, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will speak to hearts. And Lord, for the empty heart, I pray that you will fill it. For the guilty heart, Lord, I pray that you will forgive. And Lord, for the sorrowful heart, I pray that you would provide encouragement. And again, Lord, I pray that you will speak to us by your word. That you would give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit convicts sinners. The Holy Spirit instructs saints. The Holy Spirit reveals truth. And in this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus is going to give us a bit of information. Remember, in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Comforter, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Remember, the disciples continue to struggle with the concept that Jesus must go away. Over and over again, we have to bring ourselves back to the context of the passage. Jesus and the disciples have left the upper room. They have gone past the Temple Mount, traveled through the valley called Kidron, and are making their way to what you and I would call the Mount of Olives. This is the place where Jesus will pray. This is the place where he will sweat great drops as if of blood. This is the place where he will cry out to God. This is the place where he'll eventually be arrested. He will be taken to prison. He will be tortured. He'll wake up the next morning. They will crucify him on a Roman cross. That's what he has to look forward to. The disciples are struggling with the idea that Jesus must leave them, that he must die, that he must go away. 
Jesus is reminding them that he isn't going to abandon them. He isn't going to leave them by themselves. He's going to send a helper and a comforter. Part of the challenge is we as Christians need to understand that the Christian life cannot be lived in the energy and the resources of the flesh. We need the powerful, transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. Many Christians often believe that it would be easier if Jesus were present. Maybe some of you have entertained thoughts in your heart thinking, wouldn't it be great if Jesus returned, that he's living in Jerusalem, that he's sitting on his Father's throne, that you could go to him and that you could have an audience with him, a a Savior who you could touch and talk to, if you will, physical, bodily, present. We may find it hard to believe, but the believer is better off right now with the presence of the Holy Spirit than the bodily presence of Jesus. But many of us don't believe it, particularly when he says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The disciples face the same problems that we face. For many of us, we prefer the limited bodily presence than an unlimited invisible presence. Some of you have even gone through such extraordinary links where you suggest that you wonder if you even know the Holy Spirit. Now clearly, they did not know the Holy Spirit and they certainly didn't know the Holy Spirit the way Jesus knows the Holy Spirit. I think it's safe to say, not just of you, but of me, I don't know the Holy Spirit the way Jesus knows the Holy Spirit. But I want to. And because there is this invisible, powerful presence, we have a a tendency to wonder whether or not the Holy Spirit is really there. The glorified Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We have a glorified and an exalted Lord in heaven. The Lord Jesus reigns on high. We also have an intercessor in the very throne room of God. We have a person who is sensitive to our needs, aware of our infirmities, tempted and tested in all things like us. Jesus is in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is on the earth. In a very real sense, this is one of the powerful arguments that we know that the Word of God is true when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit really came. And that the Holy Spirit is really present. As a matter of fact, Roy Lauren said something very powerful. He was a companion of Billy Graham's. He wrote... The Holy Spirit is to be to the believer all that Christ was while present with the disciples. I want you to think about that for just a moment because it's an astonishing thought. On earth, Jesus provided advice and companionship and instruction and correction and comfort and strength and support and protection. In chapter 15... Jesus spoke to his disciples about fruit-bearing and loving and suffering 
and witnessing. But soon, very soon, the disciples are going to be thrust into the difficult and even terrifying circumstance of pain and suffering and hardship and persecution. But it is the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit that is going to enable them and transform them and strengthen them and give them the ability to live lives of joy and victory in Christ, particularly in the face of opposition. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we are unable to grasp the spiritual implications of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. It is the very presence of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to understand spiritual reality. You know, for many people, though, something gets lost in the translation because we think of the Holy Spirit as being invisible and silent and not really there. But nothing could be further from the truth. There's a story about a Mexican bank robber by the name of Jorge Rodriguez. And he operated along the Texas and Mexican border and he, used, he was so successful at robbing banks and staging holdups that the, that, the, that the Texans just became frustrated and they decided to send one of the uh, Texas Rangers uh, across the Rio Grande in order to stop him. And Jorge found his way across the river. He went to a little cantina and there he sat himself at the bar and the Texas Ranger followed him and snuck in on him and got the draw on him. Unfortunately, the Texas Ranger spoke no Spanish. And Jorge Rodriguez spoke no English. And so the ranger said, I've got you, and I'm going to prosecute you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to blow you away unless you tell me where all the money is hid that you've stolen from the good citizens of Texas. And he goes, Lo siento, no entiendo nada que estás diciendo. And this guy named Ramon Garcia goes, I'm sorry, sir, but he does not understand anything that you're saying. He does not even speak a word of English. And the Texas Ranger said, you speak pretty good English. You come over here. You tell him I am going to kill him dead unless he tells me where that money is hidden. And he goes, the gringo wants to know where you hid the money. And he goes, Please, please don't shoot me. I will tell you everything. You have to ride south out of town six miles until you come to the bank of the river. Then you go to the south side of the river and there you travel six more miles until you come to a gigantic cottonwood tree. And then you go to the south side of the tree and you take exactly six paces and then you dig in the dirt exactly six feet and there you will find all the money. And the ranger said, what did he say? And he said, sir, he said, I would rather die than tell the gringo where the treasure is. (laughs) Yeah, it, it loses something. And how can all of that mean only that? And sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you see the words that are spoken and you ask and answer the question, how can this mean only that? But look what it says. The Holy Spirit convicts sinners. Look at verse 8. 
And when He has come, that is the Spirit, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. It is the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to translate spiritual reality. The Holy Spirit, look what it says, convicts or reproves the world of sin. In verse 8, I want to draw your attention to that word, convict. The Greek word, elengeko, is almost untranslatable. One Greek scholar says it means, quote, to show someone his sin and then to summon him to repentance. He goes on to say, quote, the word doesn't mean only to blame or to reprove, nor to convince in the sense of provide proof, or simply to reveal, or simply to expose, but it means to expose in such a way that you want to set things right. As a matter of fact, because no single English word seems adequate to communicate the full range of of the word, in the ancient world, in the Greek world, it was a legal term. It was used in the law to describe the process of cross-examination of a witness or a man who was at trial or an opponent in an argument. The point was to expose the falsity of their argument, to prove the truth of your own argument with a sense of changing the person's mind. In a very real sense, when it says, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, that conviction means to prod or to poke or to prick a person's heart until he or she senses that there's something wrong, there's something terribly wrong. Not simply in the sense of the presence that I've done wrong things or that I'm guilty of wrong acts. Convince means to persuade. It means to hammer. It means to relentlessly drive at a person's heart until he or she know the facts concerning the sinful circumstances as they are. For years, for years and years and years, people told me the gospel. People told me that I was a sinner in need of a savior. I would watch a television show, or, or I would listen to someone on the radio. I would even see pastors or evangelists preach. But it was like falling on deaf ears. It was as if people would tell me the truth about my own sin and the need of a Savior, but for whatever reason, it never really made sense to me. And that's because it is the Holy Spirit that brings a message of conviction to the sinner's heart. You see, the truth is, I can't convince anyone that they're a sinner. Many of you have seen Billy Graham on television or heard him on the radio. And you might think, well, you know, when Billy Graham presents the gospel, he'll, you know, he'll say stuff like, God loves you, Jesus loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. The Bible says you're sinners in need of a Savior. I'm going to ask hundreds of you to get up out of your seat and come. And then they do. And you think, well, if I said the gospel using a Billy Graham voice, and if I said word for word the things that he says, well, then that, 
Wouldn't hundreds, maybe even thousands of people respond to the message? And you know what? It isn't just simply what is being said. And it isn't even using it in a Billy Graham voice that makes it powerful. It's the very presence of the Holy Spirit. Convicting and convincing concerning the situation. I'll never forget when I was in high school, I remember someone came up to me. And and they didn't tell me what a terrible sinner I was. They just simply asked me the most simple question. They said, are you a Christian? And I remember, as if it were yesterday, saying, of course I am, I'm a Catholic. And I remember a voice inside of my heart speaking No, you're not, you're a sinner. And I, I literally remember looking under my shirt going... Where did that voice come from? It was the presence of the Holy Spirit convicting me. Convicting me of my sin. You will remember that the religious Jews who will take Jesus and they will crucify Him. They believed in their heart that they were doing the right thing. Weeks later, after the Holy Spirit descended... On believers in the upper room, you'll remember that Peter preached a powerful sermon with great conviction in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And the Bible says that they were cut to their heart. He said, you've wickedly taken Jesus who God has made, both Lord and Christ, and you crucified Him. But He rose from the dead. God raised Him from the dead to prove that His message is true. And they cried out and they said, what must we do to be saved? It was the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come. I have gone to the most remote villages in India where the Jesus film has been showed. I have gone in the middle of nowhere where there's generators and they hang a sheet and they play the Jesus film and... People watch a Palestinian Jew 2,000 years ago die on a cross and rise from the dead and they'll start to weep and sob. How do you explain that? How do you explain people going to a Mel Gibson movie and they watch Jesus being tortured and killed and they sob and they openly weep. What is it that is causing them to understand that what is happening is so wrong? It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They understand something. That something is wrong. Something is terribly wrong. Something is desperately wrong. And Jesus says in verse 9, of sin... Because they do not believe in me. Each word is important. In the text, when it says of sin, the word is singular. It isn't just the the sum and the substance of all of the sins that they've ever committed. This is the sin of unbelief. This is the great and ultimate sin. This is the sin that eventually brings the judgment of God. This is the sin that is the ultimate sin. And you may not think that, but you would be wrong. Roy Lauren, 
companion of Billy Graham again writes, Other sins make us sinful, but this sin makes us sinners. Other sins make us unrighteous, but this sin makes us unbelievers. Other sins may be against the law, but this sin is against love. Other sins may be against man, but this sin is against God. Unquote. Do you understand something? Everything that exists in this universe, and by, by everything I mean everything, everything exists in the universe to bring glory to God and attention to Jesus. Every moment of every day, every star, every galaxy, every drop of water, and every grain of sand, every moment in every life, in every history, is to draw attention to Jesus. God put Adam and Eve in a garden. They were allowed to sin and rebel against God, and their transgression became the whole point of history, their redemption for that transgression. The reason why Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. The reason why God sent a Savior. The reason why the Lord spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Spoke to Joseph. The reason why God in every age and in every generation has spoken to the prophets. The reason why God has allowed everything to happen that has happened is to draw attention that a Savior has come to the world and that you can receive life and hope and grace and forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. You may think that the worst possible thing that could happen is to exterminate a race of people. You may think that the worst thing that can happen is a genocide in Eastern Europe or a genocide in Rwanda. You might think that the worst thing that could happen is for Pol Pot to mercilessly kill tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people. You might think lying and stealing and murder are the worst things that can happen. But the worst thing, my friends, that can happen is for a person to reject the provision that God has given in the person of Jesus Christ. It might seem incomprehensible to you. But that's what the Scripture teaches. My friend John Ankerberg in his lecture entitled Characteristics of the People and False Religions of the Last Days stated, quote, according to recent polls of George Gallup and George Barna and James D. Hunter, 35% of America's evangelical seminarians deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary. What is even more alarming is that 35% of the entire adult evangelical population agrees with the statement, quote, God will save all people when they die, regardless of whether or not they've trusted in Christ, unquote. What a lie. What a wicked perversion. That there are people that occupy churches and speak from pulpits and guess what? They don't believe what they're saying to you. They don't believe that the Bible is true and they don't believe that the gospel is true and they don't believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved. You know what? They might as well work at Disneyland 
and put on an outfit. And just continue whatever pretense they happen to be going through. Pulpit helps reveal that a survey of 7,441 Protestant pastors, 51% Methodist, 35% Presbyterian, 33% Baptist, 30% Episcopalian, didn't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Do you know what? For them, the Holy Spirit is not real. They don't believe the gospel. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes, he says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, it says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast. That means if angels communicated the truth and it proved to be true and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? It was their way of saying, we heard what Jesus said. We couldn't afford to ignore what he said. Transgression means to wander off the path, to go astray, to walk in a different direction. We've broken God's law. The Holy Spirit is at this very moment present in the world. People will often ask me on my radio uh, program, what is the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit? I'm telling you something. The evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is the fact that anyone can understand that they're sinners in need of a Savior. The moment that you come to this place where you understand and recognize that there is a desperate circumstance inside of your heart that requires a Savior is proof positive that the Holy Spirit is present in the world. The very fact of the Spirit's presence is evidenced, listen carefully, by the blanket of unbelief that surrounds the world. You want proof that there's a Holy Spirit? Look around you. And look at all of the people who reject Christ. People you know. People in your family. People in your neighborhood. People in your country. They reject Jesus Christ. They don't go, Oh, Buddha. Oh, Krishna. Their unbelief is centered and focused on Jesus Christ. That's who they reject. And by the way, the proof of the Spirit's presence in the world is the proof of the righteousness of Jesus Christ who has now returned to the Father. That's what Jesus says in verse 10. Look and read it for yourself. Not just simply of sin, of sin, but of righteousness. Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. This is interesting because Jesus doesn't say of unrighteousness. He says of righteousness. Because Jesus is the example 
of righteousness to a world that might ask the question, what is it that God needs? What is it that God demands? What is it that God requires? And the word righteousness means right standing. It means the ability to be accepted. Of righteousness, it means the ability to be accepted by God of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The righteous standard has been killed when human beings killed Jesus. And the righteous standard rises from the dead and the righteous standard ascends into heaven. Do you want to know what it's going to take for you to have a right relationship with God? You're going to have to be perfect, and that perfection is going to have to be as perfect as Jesus is perfect. While on earth, Christ was accused of being a lawbreaker and a sinner, as well as a counterfeit. But the fact that the Spirit is present on the earth is proof that the Father raised the Son and then sent Him back to heaven. The reality is that His righteousness is confirmed. In the fact that God raised him from the dead. You know, there's one thing. There's one thing that would cause me to forever and ever renounce Christianity in Christ. And that's if someone could prove to me that Jesus never rose from the dead. Because guess what? If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then my faith and your faith is a gigantic cosmic joke. But guess what? The resurrection of the dead also becomes clear evidence that the Holy Spirit is in fact present in the world. How could Jesus be wrong about something so important if he says, hey, if you kill me, I'm going to come back to life? Uh, Okay. He then comes back to life, but he fails. He, He fails to keep the promise of sending the Holy Spirit. When a person rejects Jesus, they don't simply reject salvation. When a person rejects Jesus, they also reject the righteousness of Christ. But guess what? Make no mistake about it. When a person rejects Jesus and they reject salvation and they reject his righteousness, they of necessity embrace their own righteousness. You see... Whether a person wants to admit it or not, the moment that they reject Jesus and the moment that they reject salvation and the moment that they reject His righteousness, they embrace a righteousness all their own. They are in effect saying to God, I'm willing to stand before you on my own terms. Good luck with that. Are you seriously? Are you seriously? By the way, it's kind of a bittersweet situation. When I said good luck with that, I good news and bad news. Bad news, I don't really believe in luck. Luck is what a fool calls it when God gives him a break. You know what? If a person decides that they're going to stand before God 
on their own righteous merit. Because think what I said earlier of sin because they don't believe in me. Yeah, it's true. I don't believe in Jesus, but I've never killed anybody. And I've, I've never been unfaithful to my husband or my wife. I've never done anything seriously wrong. Well, that eliminates about 99% of the people because everyone has done something very seriously wrong. Is there 1% who hasn't done something seriously wrong, but they've only done a thing minor wrong? I think that the answer is yes. But it only takes one sin. It only takes one transgression. It only takes one imperfection to disqualify you from heaven. The righteousness of Jesus becomes our own righteousness when we experience not simply the conviction of the Holy Spirit for our sin, and not simply faith's appropriation of God's provision in the person of Jesus Christ, but it's when we make the transfer and we with confidence say, I believe exactly what the Bible has to say about Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sin and for my justification. And so the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, convinces of righteousness, but also condemns. Look at verse 11 of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever, the sinner, of his or her sin of unbelief. The Holy Spirit convinces him or her of righteousness and then of judgment. Now listen carefully. You want evidence that the Holy Spirit has shown up? The evidence that the Holy Spirit has shown up takes place whenever a person acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what one of the reasons why it says in 1 John, no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But an unbeliever can say Jesus Christ is Lord, but they don't mean it. They don't believe it, and they don't believe it in the same way that the Bible says so. So in what way is the Holy Spirit condemning Satan? In what way is the ruler of this world judged? Well, listen carefully. When Jesus dies on the cross, the prince of this world is judged. Because of this judgment, everyone who exercises faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is removed from the dominion of Satan and then placed under the dominion of Christ. This is what the New Testament means when it says you come from darkness into light and from death into life. Satan is judged and condemned by the obedience of Jesus on the cross. The moment that Jesus is arrested and then convicted and then judged by wicked human beings and placed on the cross of Calvary, Satan is judged and condemned. But it's more than that. Satan is judged 
and condemned the moment you believe the truth about the gospel. Do you understand the power of that statement? The moment that you believe by faith that God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin and you trust Him for your salvation, Satan is judged and condemned. The cross judges and condemns Satan in all of his authority and all of his power. And the judgment can be summarized by drawing attention to three specific areas. Number one, the cross judges and breaks the power of Satan over the world, according to John 12.31. Number two, the cross judges and breaks the power of Satan over death, John 12.31. And the cross judges and breaks the authority and power of Satan to corrupt human beings through worldliness and sin, John 12.32. This is what Jesus said earlier. If you just go back a couple of pages, in John 12.31 it says, Now this is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. That's powerful. The cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, the cross has the power to deliver from bondage and give life. And this is why the cross becomes the centerpiece, the focal point, the main attraction throughout all eternity. It is because the sacrifice of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, liberates human beings forever. I want you to think carefully for just a moment. Every single person who comes to Christ by faith does so because they're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And they're convinced by the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? That if I can talk you into accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... Someone a little more clever than me can talk you out of it. But if you're changed by the sacrifice of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing that I can say and there's nothing that I can do to take away your forgiveness and take away your hope and take away your redemption and take away your future because it is all hidden in Christ. A powerful proof that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and working in the world is because Satan has been judged. And Satan has been defeated. Otherwise, Satan would be in charge and, and in control of this world. Now, in one sense, it is true that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. But yet in another sense, God is sovereign and God is in control. And the plan of God and the purpose of God is still in effect. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. That means when the invitation is given 
for people to get saved, it can happen. Again, Wiersbe writes, You may apply these three judgments to the individual unbeliever. The Spirit uses witnessing Christians and the Word to convince the unbeliever of his sin of unbelief and of his need of righteousness and of the fact that since he belongs to Satan, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, he's on the losing side. There is no salvation without Spirit-led conviction for the Spirit uses the Word to convict lost souls. Remember I told you that Someone said to me, are you a Christian? And I said, of course I am. I'm a Catholic. And a, and a voice whispered inside of my heart, no, you're not. You're a sinner. That same person invited me to a concert at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And there was a group playing, a band called The Road Home. And I'll never forget, they sang a song. The song went, two roads from which to choose. The rocky one or the Lord's new freeway. Two roads from which to choose. The rocky one or the Lord's new freeway. Choose before the Savior comes. The road to glory or the rocky one. Please decide Before the Lord descends, the road to glory or the bitter end. And I'll never forget, the preacher spoke of a scripture from John chapter 11. It was when Jesus was raising Lazarus from the dead and he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me Even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And I'll never forget the voice whispering inside of my heart. Jesus Christ is alive. And he can forgive your sin. He can change you. The wickedness and the darkness and the emptiness and the sin inside of you can go away. And it was as if a dark cloud lifted from my heart and I realized for the very first time in my life that Jesus Christ was alive and that he was capable of saving me. But it wasn't the words of the scripture alone. And it wasn't the words of the song alone. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that convicted me of my sin, convinced me of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the certainty of judgment In one alarming poll, George Barna claims, quote, 
53% of those claiming to be Bible-believing conservative Christians said there is no such thing as absolute truth. In another poll, 43% of so-called born-again Christians agreed that, quote, it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because all faiths teach the same lessons. And I have to wonder... How could these people be listening to the spirit of truth? Because the spirit of truth convicts sinners of sin. Convinces people of the need that it is the righteousness of Christ that is what is required. And the certainty of judgment, apart from Jesus... You know, during December of 2007, the Barna Group also asked a random sampling of some 1,005 American adults who believed what they believed about six popular Bible stories. And they were given two alternatives. Number one, that the stories were factually accurate. Or number two, they weren't actual fact, but they were designed to teach principles. Here are the results. 75% believed that the virgin birth is accurate, but that means 25% believed it wasn't. 69% believed that Jesus actually changed water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana, but that means 39% didn't believe it. 68% believed that Jesus used loaves of of bread and fish to feed the 5,000. 64% believed in the flood of Noah. However, several groups didn't regard it as real or a real event. Catholics, atheists, agnostics, Northeasterners, I don't know how they got in there. But apparently what they were talking about is college graduates with a family income over $75,000. The idea being too smart, too educated to believe this nonsense. You know what? We're going to have to stop. And I'm going to have to finish when we come back. The whole, I'm going to, we're going to continue our investigation of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, particularly as it relates to the believer when we come back. Guy King suggests three ways in which the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus. He wrote a book about him. The Holy Spirit makes believers like him. And the Holy Spirit finds a bride for him. That's what we're going to talk about when we come back together. But remember what the unbeliever does. The unbeliever rejects the book about him. The unbeliever refuses to embrace belief about him. And therefore fails to participate in a future wedding that will take place in heaven. Everything God has done in the universe is to bring you to a place where you will recognize your sin 
but also recognize him as the Savior. Everything. That's why there is no greater crime than the crime of unbelief. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I know that it isn't with the excellence of music or the arrangement of words that creates conviction, that provides convincing and persuasion. Lord, I love the fact that I can't talk anyone permanently into the kingdom of heaven. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do that which only the Holy Spirit can do. Reveal the circumstances of each and every heart in this room. Reveal the need of a Savior to each and every heart. And extend the invitation to turn from sin, to turn to the Savior, to accept the glorious invitation of hope and life and love and forgiveness and redemption. Is that you? Do you need to know Jesus as your Savior? And just put up your hand and acknowledge it. It's okay. Lift up your hand. Lift up your hand and say, this is what I need and this is what I want. It's okay. The invisible God that you don't see sees the invisible circumstances of your heart. It's the Holy Spirit that's convicting you. Would you like a fresh start? Forgiveness and hope? It's available to you. Heavenly Father, for those that have raised their hand, Lord, I pray that you would shower their heart with a sense of your presence and joy. Lord, that they've confessed their sin and that they've received the Savior. And there is now for them the permanent hope of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.